Hebrews chapter 11, as we continue in this series, The Life of Faith. And today we'll be examining the life of faith of a man named Enoch. So let's read about Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and then we'll pray and get into the study. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. And he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that is in front of us and for the life of faith that is explained to us in the scriptures this morning. We thank you for the truth that you reward those who seek you. And we've come into this place seeking you today, Lord. We want to surrender our own agendas and our own wills and our whole lives. And we want to come seeking you in your kingdom and your will and your glory. And so we ask according to the scriptures that you would reward us this morning. That you would reward us, Lord, by purging out of us evil desires by removing from our hearts those things, that wickedness, that selfishness, that self-absorption that ought not to be in the life of the Christian. We ask that you would reward us by building into us godly character, a heavenly perspective, that you would reward us by transforming our lives through the renewing of our minds, that you would reward us by causing us to be imitators of God and conforming us to the image of Christ, that we'd be less carnal and more like Jesus. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, you'd come and do this. We ask together that you would help me to communicate in a way that honors your church and glorifies you. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. I want to draw your attention to the painting that we have this morning. As you know, we've been doing an original piece of art for each one of these teachings, and this one of Enoch is absolutely phenomenal. I want to invite you after the service day to come up on the stage and get a close look at his face. I first saw this painting of Enoch about a week ago, and I have not been able to get his face out of my mind. I mean, our artist has so captured the joy of a man who loves God being taken up to heaven to be with God. He has just nailed it. There's a tear of joy coming out of Enoch's eye. The look of satisfaction and elation on his face is overwhelming. I am so thankful for this piece of art. I want you guys to come up afterwards and make sure that you get a good look at it. So we're talking about the life of faith this morning in Enoch. And this is the second story of great faith, of great trust displayed toward God after that great failure to trust God on the part of Adam and Eve. And here's what we learn from verse 5. We learn from verse 5 that Enoch was pleasing to God and then he was taken up to God. And that's all the information that we have. It's not a lot of information. But whatever the details are, it's easy for us to glean this fact, that Enoch had great faith. That's obvious because he's in the hall of faith. He's in Hebrews chapter 11. But that is also obvious because the testimony of his life is that he pleased God. And as verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So even in light of the lack of details and the lack of information, we do know that Enoch had great faith. 
But let's go hunting for more details. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 5. Go there if you would. Genesis chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. In this whole chapter, we have a, a telling of the generations that came after Adam. And Enoch is seven generations after Adam. And we've got a little more information here. It starts in Genesis 5, verse 21. It says, And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And then he was not. For God took him. There's not a lot more information than we get in the book of Hebrews, but what seems potent, what seems most powerful here is the fact that Enoch walked with God. That's what's mentioned twice in the passage. Two times it says Enoch walked with God. Now, we want to see what we can glean from that fact. What is the faith lesson here? What are we to learn from the fact that Enoch walked with God? Well, let's go back to last week's story. You'll remember that last week's life of faith was that of Abel. And that story had to do with worshiping God. Abel's life of faith had to do with worshiping God. Now the second example, the life of faith being Enoch, has to do with walking with God. So it started with worshiping God, and now it goes to walking with God. And really this is a divine order, a divine progression of things. In Abel, we see faith worshiping. In Enoch, we see faith walking. And the latter flows out of the former. That is to say, when we cultivate a lifestyle of worship, a first fruit worship, putting God first, then a fruitful walk with God flows out of that. It is true, vice versa. The more we walk with God, the more we want to worship God. But the divine order of things, the progression that we seem to find in Scripture by order of the Holy Spirit, is that it starts with the life of worship. And then it goes into the life of walking with God. And Abel then shows us where the life of faith begins, but Enoch shows us what the life of faith consists of. Enoch walked with God. That's about all we know. We can begin to connect with that concept because this is part of our Christian grammar, walking with God. We use this sort of phraseology all the time, don't we? Like if I'm going to sit down with a young man and for accountability purposes or for discipleship or something, I'll often say to him, well, hey, bro, so how's your walk? And that doesn't mean do you have a limp or, you know, do you got some sort of stroll? It means... How is your relationship with the Lord? This is common vernacular for us. We say it all the time. You know, um, oh, hi, nice to meet you. How long have you been walking with the Lord? Hey, where's so-and-so? Is she still walking with the Lord? Or gosh, I can't believe that guy's not walking with the Lord anymore. This is common to us. This is the Christianese. This is part of our grammar to walk with the Lord. And it denotes our relationship. But let's try to unpack the concept. It's common to us, but what does it really mean to walk with God? And furthermore, why does it require faith or trust as we understand faith in this chapter? What was Enoch's deal? 
Why is it so profound? Why was it such a great display of faith that he did walk with God? Well, think of it in this way. The term walk signifies a few things. It means a few things. First of all, when we think of walking, we think of a voluntary act. It says that Enoch walked with God, not that Enoch was dragged by God. We need to understand that. So walk signifies to us something that is voluntary. Secondly, walking signifies a steady advance as opposed to sort of a a stutter step or a start-stop sort of thing or a run real hard and run real fast and then just kind of poop out. Walking signifies a steady advance. And then thirdly, walking signifies spiritual progress, a continuous forward motion. That's what walking is. It's continuous forward motion. And so just that phraseology, walking, begins to make us think of a voluntary act, a steady advance, and a progression in spiritual things. So then to walk with God means firstly, a life that is surrendered to God. It's voluntary. It's a life that is surrendered. It is a life that is said, not my will be done, but your will be done, God. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to surrender your life. Secondly, walking with God is a life that is controlled by God. It's steady. It's controlled by God. It's not start and stop. It's not a stutter thing. It's not real run real hard or lag way behind. It's controlled by the Spirit of God. And then thirdly, walk with God means a life that is lived for God. It speaks of discipleship. It speaks of progression. A life that is lived for God, for the glory of God, the purposes of God, the mission of God. Now, all of this denotes, requires, and both facilitates and is predicated upon intimacy with God. Understand that. Intimacy with God is really the issue here. That phraseology, walking with God, is used throughout the book of Genesis. And it always denotes ongoing relationship, ongoing intimacy. It's said of Noah that he walked with God. It's said of Abraham that he walked with God. It's said of Isaac that he walked before God. It's always speaking of, it's metaphorical for a real meaningful relationship with God. And what we begin to understand from the Hebrews 11 passage is that walking with God pleases God. It really does. Walking with God pleases God. It says of Enoch, he walked with God and he pleased God. But here's the how and the why. How and why walking with God pleases God. We need to start to think of it this way. Amos 3.3 says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? So walking with any other person, walking with anybody, suggests a mutual agreement of some sort. If you're going to walk with somebody, you must come to agreement on a few things. In fact, it's impossible to walk with somebody unless we agree upon these three things. Number one, the place to which you are walking. Number two, the path upon which you are walking. And number three, the pace at which you are walking. 
If we're going to walk with anybody, we must agree upon the place, the path, and the pace. Let's unpack that. Number one, to walk together, you have to agree upon the place or the destination to which you are going. One of the fun things to do when you're married is uh, go shopping together. <laughs> and when I, when I say fun, I'm, I'm, you know, fun, I mean fun. <laughs> any, any husband and wife that has ever gone shopping together understands this, that the path to Nordstrom and the path to Lowe's are not the same. <clears throat> Therefore, if you're going to be together, you got to agree upon the destination. Anybody knows that? You've got to agree upon the place to which you are going. And what is inherent in the text here is that Enoch was heading in God's direction. Enoch was going to God's place. Enoch and God were in agreement on the end point, the destination, the place. <clears throat> now we've got to begin to ask ourselves as we seek to apply the scriptures, which we must do. Are we heading to God's place? Are we in our lives, our daily lives, moving in God's direction? Have we agreed upon the final destination? Now, of course, as Christians, we've all agreed upon, yes, heaven. We want to go to heaven. We agree with you, Lord, great destination. That's where we want to be. <clears throat> That's a no-brainer. But I'm talking about in general life, in your daily life, your small goals, your goals for the day. Have you and the Lord agreed upon the place, the goal, the destination? We need to ask ourselves in this in life. If we're going to walk with God, got to be going to the same place. Now, it'll help us to discover whether or not this is so in our lives. When we realize what is most important to God? What is most important to God? God's glory. God's glory is the singular most important thing to him. You may have answered that question differently. You were wrong. God's glory is the single most important thing to him. It is more important than you. It is more important than the earth. It is more important than creation. God's glory is the most important thing. Now, we have difficulty understanding that because we are perverts. We are perverted. We are wrong in so much of our thinking. When we think about glory, of course, it's wrapped up in our own glory because we're glory seekers. This is part of our fallenness. This is part of our distrust and mistrust directed toward God, that we are glory seekers. And so in our minds, our seeking our own glory is wholly selfish and self-absorbed and sinful, and so it is. But God is not like you. Don't project your sinfulness upon a holy God. Think about it this way. God being just, God being wise, God being altogether right is going to be concerned with the right things. And there is nothing in all the universe that takes precedent over the glory of God. There is nothing that is more right than the glory of God. 
Nothing more wonderful than the glory of God. Nothing more redeeming than the glory of God. Nothing more holy than the glory of God. Nothing more valuable in all the universe than the glory of God. So for God to exalt anything above his glory would be error. It's not wrong for God to be most concerned with his glory as it would be wrong for you and I. It'd be wrong for God to be most concerned with anything else because it is the thing of highest value in all the universe, the glory of God. And so what is the end goal in all things? God's glory. That is the end goal in all things. And so how do we align our lives with God's goal? We get concerned with his glory. We begin to live our lives for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We begin to make decisions that bring glory to God, whether they would be at our own expense or not. We begin to engage in mission that brings glory to God. We seek to glorify God then in our parenting, in our relationships, in our vocation, in our ministry the glory of God now becomes the most important thing. And when you catch that, then you and God have the same end goal, the same destination, the same place. And you can begin walking with God. How can you walk unless you have agreement? What do you have to agree upon? First, you have to agree upon the place. And God's glory is the most important thing. The other thing that God is concerned with is his kingdom. Now, we have difficulty with this because in our fallenness, we are kingdom builders, but it's our kingdom that we love to build. We build for our reputation. We're just like those in Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, they said, let's build this kingdom. Let's build this tower and glorify ourselves. That's in each one of us. Needs to be redeemed by the cross of Christ and the spirit of God. We need to be kingdom seekers, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. And so to align our lives with God's goals, to walk with God, we have to be concerned with building his kingdom. After all, did not our Lord teach us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So the Christian begins to think then, how can I manifest God's kingdom in my workplace? How can I bring a little bit of God's kingdom into my cubicle? with my coworkers? How can I bring God's kingdom into my recreation? How can I manifest a little bit of God's kingdom, God's glory, God's purposes, the gospel of Christ in my relationships? How can I seek first the kingdom of God in my finances? The Christian needs to ask themselves these sorts of questions. And then to walk with God, the Christian needs to be concerned with things that are consistent with the character and the plan of God. The character and the plan of God. Seek the character of God as developing in your own life. Seek to do things that are consistent with the plan of God and the character of God. Mercy, grace, justice, humility, love, in fact, Micah 6, 8, I'll just read it to you, makes it real clear. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
So we need to agree with God on the end goal, which is God's glory, God's kingdom, God's character, God's plan. And then we make decisions in our daily lives today. As we head toward the evening today, we make decisions that are consistent with those goals, with that destination. Now, speaking of heading toward the right place, the right destination, it says back in Hebrews that Enoch was taken up. He was taken up. It could also be translated, he was translated. It can be translated either way. He was taken up or he was translated. The definition in the Greek is that he was carried across. It's to bear up, to remove, to change from one place to another. Now, how can we begin to apply this fact in our lives? That Enoch was taken up. Well, there's two ways that we can make this practical and apply it to our lives. The first is by thinking about the rapture. We just have a real neat picture here of Enoch being taken directly to heaven without ever dying of the rapture of the church. When Jesus will do that same thing for a whole generation. It's not normal. It's miraculous. I mean, only Enoch and Elijah were ever taken up. But the Bible is explicit that there will be a whole generation that will be taken up and that will not see death. And Enoch is a little foreshadow, a little picture, a little down payment, a little taste on the fact that God does this and can do this and will do this. The rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of it and says, starting in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning die. We will not all die. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion on earth that says there will be some people that will never die? We will not all die, but we will all be changed, translated. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. This is speaking of the rapture of the church. That moment when Christ comes for his bride in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4 gives us more detail that we shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the sky and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now there is not only a catching up that happens at the rapture, there is a translation that happens. We are changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it says, because to live in the heavenly realm, this perishable body, and can I get a witness that this thing is as perishable as cottage cheese, (laughs) that this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And so when Enoch was taken up, he was translated, he was changed into his glorified body. And we too, a whole generation, shall be changed at the trump of God, the twinkling of an eye in a moment. We shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the sky and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now what this does practically is it affects the way that we live. This is affected in the epistle, uh, um, reflected, excuse me, in the epistle of 1 John where in chapter 3, verse 3, it says about the rapture, everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself even as he, Christ, is pure. In other words, when we're truly living in the expectation that Jesus might come at any time, it changes the way that we live. All of a sudden, we want to be on mission. 
We want to be involved in the work of the kingdom. We want to be running for God's glory because we never know when he's going to come back. And I've got friends and family and community members that aren't saved yet. So it changes the way that I live. It changes the way that I think about mission and evangelism and the Great Commission. Suddenly, I want to be about God's business because I don't know when he's coming back again. And then also, just real frankly and very pragmatically, I want to be living a holy life when he comes. When he comes and we don't know when it is, I don't want to get caught with my hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. I want to be a man of character when he comes. I want to be about the business of God, consumed with the glory of God, running for the kingdom of God. And so it says here, the Christian that has this hope on Jesus, the blessed hope, Titus says, of his coming, purifies himself. Says, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm going to do these things instead in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. So in that way, we glean from Enoch that there is a life that will be going up and that affects how we live. But a second application that we can draw from this is the idea of living up. In the rapture, we'll be going up, but right now we need to be living upward. In other words, transcending living above the darkness of this world, living for the heavenlies, living above the drama of this world, living according to the light and the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. This is reflected in the book of Colossians. I'd like us to turn there, please. Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 9, the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referring to their love in the Spirit, of which he had heard about, says in Colossians 1, 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, check out this prayer, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins." Now, this passage speaks about living up. In other words, living up to the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and the relationship that we have with God. Not allowing these things to be merely theoretical or merely philosophical or ethereal, but making them practical. That these truths of our salvation and who God is and what he has done for us have a bearing in our daily life. That's what he was praying for them. They they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. 
that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they walk in a manner that was worthy of God, that they'd be pleasing God in all respects, that their lives would be bearing fruit, that they'd be strengthened according to God's power, that they would live lives that were giving thanks. And the reason is because we, like Enoch, have been translated or transferred or taken up. You see, there's become, there's happened a change in address. It says in verse 13 that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved son. This is as real as a nose on your face. We have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness that is ruling in this world and we have been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son who is the ruler of all the universe. You understand now this is to have a practical bearing in the way that we live. Yes, we look forward to the day when we will be going up but in the meantime we need to be living up to the doctrines of God the truth of God, the character of God, and the standard of God. Colossians 3 speaks about this more. Turn there, please. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, tells us exactly how to do this. Colossians 3, 1 says, If then you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things, the things above, and not on the things that are on the earth. Because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, speaking of the rapture, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also then... Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You see, we're to set our mind, our affections, our goals, our priorities on the things that are above, the reality of Christ Jesus and who he is. And then we're to live according to the new nature and not the old one. In that then, we're able to transcend, live up, live above the darkness, the drama, the evil and the heartbreak of this world and live according to the light and the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, we need not carnalize these truths. In other words, I'm making up a word there, carnalize. We we need not carnalize these words. In other words, don't be bound by the flesh. Don't sell them short. Don't say, oh, you know, that's kind of pie in the sky stuff. It's not, brothers and sisters. That's stinking thinking. You need to correct that. That's wrong. Doctrine is to lead to practice. Don't carnalize it. Don't say, well, that's kind of, you know, the ideal, but here I am. Give yourself fully to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
not only should we not carnalize them, but we shouldn't culturize these truths. Again, I'm making up another word, I think. Don't culturize. In other words, don't think this. Oh, well, you know, Enoch. Enoch lived thousands of years ago, and it was easy for him to do, but the world is way more gnarly now. Wait a minute. You know not of which you speak. Enoch was an antediluvian. That's a fancy, fun way of saying he lived before the flood. Enoch lived before the flood. Now, what was the situation on earth before the flood? It was utter wickedness or God wouldn't have flooded it. In fact, it says in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So don't culturize it and say, oh, it was easy for Enoch. You know, the ancients, their life was easy. It wasn't so perverse. It was, or God wouldn't have flooded it. He lived in a culture just like ours. Yes, it was perverse. Yes, it was wicked. But when it says Enoch walked with God, that means that everyone else was walking away from God. And the choice of the life of faith is to walk with God when nobody else is. Deciding to follow Jesus. The cross before you, the whole world behind you, but I'm following Jesus. This is a conscious, cognitive decision that we've got to make every day because yes, it is true. We, like Enoch, are bombarded with wickedness and evil. You turn on the TV and there it is in high def. You go online and there it is in high speed. You drive down the road and there it is. You show up in the classroom and there it is. You go to the workplace and there it is. We are bombarded. Therefore, the decision to transcend according to the truth of God and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit must be cognitive and daily in the life of the Christian in order to live a life of faith. It says of Enoch being taken up that he was taken up that he should not see death, meaning he didn't experience physical death. It's a miracle. It's awesome. Lucky guy. Never died. But I want us to glean something from this as well. I want us to think beyond physical death, though that was the case. He was literally physically taken up to heaven. He never physically died. But I want us to think to the spiritual reality for the Christians. You see, Enoch being taken up without seeing death pictures for us that the power of death has been broken in the life of the Christian. Death comes because of sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the second part of the verse says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus offers to us eternal life, which nullifies and breaks because of the cross, the power of death. And so we have eternal life. Jesus said in John 11, verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, he asked. And so in Jesus Christ, we are offered eternal life. But eternal life is not only a goal. It's not only speaking of length of life. It speaks of quality life. It's not only a goal in the future. It is an actuality of the immediate Eternal life is a quality of life by which we live according to the power of the Holy Spirit. We live according to the new life that we've been given in Christ Jesus. So the fact that Enoch did not taste death becomes metaphorical for us, a picture of the fact that we have eternal life. 
both the future hope of that and the immediate quality of that life that transcends the drama of the world. We have new life. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, Therefore, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And there's what the Christian needs to endeavor to do. We walk in the new life that we've been given. I mean, we really have been made brand new. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. All things have been made brand new. Therefore, to walk in newness of life means we have a new perspective. We have a new set of priorities. There's a new plan. There's a new power in which we live. There's a new place to which our gaze is fixed. There's new direction. There are new goals. The Christians walk in newness of life. We cannot walk with God unless we've agreed on the place to which we are going, which is the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the character and the plan of God, which is made manifest in the life of Christian through the salvation given to us through Jesus Christ. And we are going up, but we need to currently be living up. So not only do we need to agree upon the place, but we need to agree upon the path. How can two walk together unless they're on the same path? Now it's interesting that you can be going to the same place as someone, but you can take a different path. Isn't that true? Very easy. I'll take the high road, you take the low road, and I'll get to Scotland before you, the old song goes. And so you could be going to the same place, but take a different path. But that's not the goal. Walking with God means that we stay on the path of God. And while Enoch's, the reason Enoch's life is so profound is because he stayed on God's path. He stayed the course. Now we need to ask ourselves, okay, right now, where you're at right now, the things that you're doing in your life, are you on God's path? Are you living God's course for you? Are you on target? Are you on goal? Are you on the path right now for what God has for your life? Are you living according to who Christ is and what he's done and what he's doing and is yet to do? See, the difficulty in the Christian life is staying on course, isn't it? We usually get on course on Sunday. Aha, yeah, there it is. Bam. Beeline for heaven. But on Monday, boo, boo. It's so easy to turn to the right or the left. But the Christian, Jesus said, is to fix their hand to the plow and to not look back. And what idiot doesn't know that when you plow, you want to plow a straight line? You see, we're to stay on course. We're to stay on path with Jesus Christ. Joshua is told this when he was facing enormous challenges in taking the land of Canaan. God said to him in Joshua 1, 7, Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Only be careful, listen to this phraseology, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Be careful. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. 
Joshua was on the cusp of history, prophetic history unfolding. It was going to be tremendously difficult. He would live out the rest of his days in battle. But God said to him, be careful, be purposeful in obeying. Stay the course. Don't veer to the right or to the left. Stay the course and you will be successful. Now that's a promise for you and I. Stay on God's path for your life and you're going to be successful. Granted, you must rid yourself of the worldly concept of success. Get rid of it altogether. But according to God's economy, you will be successful. I mean, the testimony of Enoch is he pleased God. He was successful. That is success in life, pleasing God. Josiah did this. It's said of Josiah in 2 Kings 22.2. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way that his father David did. He didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. And you know what? Josiah was used to bring revival to a whole kingdom. He radically impacted his community. He radically impacted society. Why? Because he stayed the course. He didn't get off track. Moses told the nation of Israel to do this in Deuteronomy. He said in chapter 5, So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. Proverbs tells us the same thing in chapter four. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Turn your foot from evil. Okay, here's the problem. We don't often watch the path of our feet. We go through life very haphazardly, almost with a victim mentality, almost just letting it happen. But the Christian is to be on mission. The Christian is to be purposeful for the glory of God and the kingdom of God according to the character of God and the plan of God. And so it says in scripture to watch the path of your feet and very simply and poignantly turn your feet from evil. We have the propensity of turning toward evil, don't we? But the Bible says turn from evil. Don't go to it, flee from it. Paul lived this way. Paul was able to say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You see, he knew that there was a course. There was a path. And he stuck to it. He stuck with Jesus. There were difficult times, but this is a protocol for the Christian. In difficult days and tumultuous times, stick with Jesus, stay the course, maintain, cling to him with every fiber of your being. Don't go to the right or the left. Maintain a steady walk, going to the same place on the same path. Let's make it real simple. How do we stay on God's path? Well, we have God's written word and we have God's prophetic voice. And we need to heed them both to stay on God's path. We have God's written word. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Begin to live according to the precepts that you find in scripture and you will find yourself on the path. Take them one at a time as they intersect with your life. Adjust your life accordingly to God's precepts and you'll be on path. And then pay attention to the prophetic voice of God. We have the written word and we have the prophetic voice. God really does speak to people prophetically by his spirit. He really wants to speak into your life. Israel was told that they would have difficult days, but they were encouraged with this in Isaiah 30. It says, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is a way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. So whenever they were starting to veer, they would hear the prophetic voice of God saying, this way. 
Do you know that God wants to do that in your life? It says in Romans 8, 14, all who are the children of God, the sons and daughters of God are being led by the spirit of God. That God wants to lead you daily in your relational choices and your financial choices and your choices of mission and vocation. He wants to lead you intimately, personally. We have the written word and we have the prophetic voice and to stay on path, we need to heed both. And what helps us to discern the path, because we're living in a culture of deception, what helps us to discern the path is that it's always going to be consistent with the character of God. The character of God. We are told in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light. God is light. It says there, this is a message we have from him and announce to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so because the Bible tells us God is light, the Bible then tells us to walk in the light. Ephesians 5.8 says, you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so we walk in the light of God, the character of God, the truth of who Christ is reflected in this world. Jesus said, he who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. How do we stay on course? God is light, walk in the light, meaning shun the darkness of the world. Flee from evil. Have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. Nay, even expose them, Ephesians says. Walk in the light, for God is light. Furthermore, Scripture tells us that God is love. 1 John 4, two times, says that God is love. Therefore, Scripture tells us to walk in love. Ephesians 5, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So because God is love, the Christian is called to walk in love. In what way? In the same way that Christ loves us. Giving the same grace toward people the same mercy toward people. Love covers a multitude of sins, releasing people from the bondage that you want to hold them in through your unforgiveness, releasing yourself through that bondage, walking in love, which exhibits grace and mercy and forgiveness and is always reaching out. By nature, love goes out of itself. So love is missional. Love puts us on mission. And because God is love, he's a God of mission. And so we're to walk in love, meaning we walk on God's mission. And the goal of God's mission is God's glory. And how do we most exhibit the love of God in this world? Pursue God's glory in this world. Scripture tells us that God is truth. 1 John 5.20, God is truth. Therefore, Scripture tells us in 2 John and 3 John to walk in the truth. Shun the lies. Expose the lies. Get rid of the lies that you've been buying into. The lies that the enemy has sold you. The lies about identity. The lies about a lack of worth. The lies about self-entitlement. About what you deserve. Free yourself from those lies. Walk in the truth. The truth shall set you free. God is truth, therefore walk in truth. Don't believe the lies, expose the lies. So to walk with God, we've got to agree upon the place. We've got to agree upon the path. 
And finally, we do got to agree upon the pace. If we're going to walk with him, we got to walk, we got to travel at the same pace. You see, Enoch had a life of faith because he stayed in step with God. This is a big deal in the Christian life. Galatians 5 urges us to keep in step with the Spirit. Meaning, don't get ahead of God in your life. And at the same time, don't lag behind. It's really easy for us to get ahead of God. You know why? Trip out on this. Because God is outside of time and space and has always been. He knows the beginning from the end. Therefore, God is never in a hurry. He knows the beginning from the end. He's outside. He's not bound by the constraints of, uh, of the time-space continuum like we are. So he's never in a hurry. We're always in a hurry. So it's hard for us to walk at the same pace. It's not so much in the Christian life. Oh, can I keep up with God? <laughs> it's, can I slow down and chill and be still and know that he is God and stick with him and not get ahead of him? That's where we err is when we get ahead of God. And we have such a proclivity to do so. We too easily get ahead of God in our finances, don't we? It's become a real problem for a lot of Americans and a lot of American Christians. We get ahead of God in your finances. Don't get ahead of God in your finances. We often get ahead of God in our relationships. And I've seen it more times than I've ever wanted to see it. I've seen a young lady choose the wrong guy. And in her loneliness, she refused to wait for God. She demanded that this be the one. And I've seen the utter destruction that that brings. And it brings destruction in lives for generations. Don't get ahead of God in your relationships. Don't get ahead of God. At the same time, don't lag behind. It's real simple. Keep in step with the Spirit. It takes daily cognitive, purposeful seeking of God to stay in step with his spirit in your life and for your life. This requires then consistency. Uh-oh, we're not real good at this. Consistency. So many Christians are up and down, start, stop, stutter, run real fast, poop out, fall behind. But the Christian life is one of discipline. We're called disciples of Jesus Christ. That word shares in its etymology with the word discipline. The Christian must have discipline. To walk with God implies and requires consistency, diligence, perseverance, and dedication. My goodness, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. 300 years Enoch walked with God. I mean, this was a real deal. Do you know what Enoch's name means? Dedicated. That's what his name means. <laughs> and he was. To walk with God amongst a perverse and crooked generation and generations for 300 years, Enoch was dedicated. That is a life of faith that we can imitate. But Enoch wasn't always dedicated. It said in Genesis 5.21 that he lived 65 years and then he had Methuselah. And then in the next verse it says, and then Enoch walked with God for 300 years. He spent the first 65 years of his life living for himself. It wasn't too late. He didn't about face. He repented. 
After 65 years, he says, no more of this. I'm going to walk with God. Some of you need to repent today. You need to do about face. You need to change direction. It's all about you and your glory and your kingdom and your purposes and your plans. And you're wrong, dude. You are wrong. It's all about God's glory and God's purposes and God's plan. And so today, agree with God on the place. Agree with God on the path and agree with God on the pace. It's going to require consistency. Do you remember finishing here? Do you remember what it said in Hebrews eleven six? 6? It said this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Here's something that's neat to know. This is why it's fun to study languages sometimes. It says he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That verb, seek, in the Greek, it's in the present tense. Greek verbs are understood differently than English verbs. In English verbs, tense has to do with the time of the action. But in Greek, the the tense has to do with the type of the action. So when a Greek verb is in the present tense, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's just happening at the moment it was written. It means that it is a continual and ongoing thing. In other words, God is a rewarder of those who are continually seeking him. You see, the Christian life is not a one-time thing. It's not a Sunday thing. The Christian life, if it's going to be one of reward, is for the Christian who diligently, daily, is seeking the Lord. The NIV says those who earnestly seek him, the New Living Translation, those who sincerely seek him, the New King James, those who diligently seek him. And so you need to ask yourself, tomorrow will you be seeking God? You're seeking him today. You're here. It's Sunday. But what about Monday and Tuesday? The life of faith is a life of consistency and discipline and Enoch. It's a life of dedication. And it's a life of faith because it believes that God is going to reward those who are continually and diligently seeking him. And when Enoch walked with God for 300 years, that means he spent 300 years going to the same place, on the same path, at the same pace. He had intimacy with God. You cannot spend 300 years going to the same place, on the same path, at the same pace without having intimacy. And that, my friends, is what pleased God. Intimacy is what pleases God. It says in Mark 3, 14, Jesus chose the 12 that they might be with him. And then, and subsequent too, that he might send them out to preach and that they might have authority over demons. But the primary issue was that they might be with him. First Corinthians says we are called into fellowship with Christ. That's the issue. And intimacy pleases God. And here's the disconnect. Here's why we often lack faith. It's because we don't often concern ourselves with pleasing God. Most of the time, we're concerned with pleasing ourselves. You can't be concerned with that and be walking with God. You don't have the same plan. You're not on the same path. You're not going at the same pace anymore. You see, the life of faith, it lives to please God. That's the testimony I want. We're all going to die. Your tombstone is going to say something. If you don't have a tombstone, somebody's going to say something. What are they going to say about you? I want them to say about me, wow, he pleased God. 
I want to please God in this lifetime. But living amongst this wicked and perverse generation, it requires faith, trust, to stay on course by the grace of God. Lord, thank you for these truths. Help us with these things, Lord. Holy Spirit, even now, come and help us. We confess our self-absorption. We can't hide it from you. You're the one that looks upon the heart. We confess our all-too-often sense of entitlement and deservedness when in reality we surrendered all that at the cross. Help us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And speak to us, Holy Spirit. We need help to discern the path, to discern the pace, to get to that place. Help us, Lord. We're too easily distracted. We're too easily enticed by evil. Holy Spirit, come. Pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. Get us on task, Lord. Get us on mission. Get us on course. If you need to change course this morning, you can come and get on your carpets before, get on your face before the Lord on the carpet. And the prayer team is here to your right. They're here to help you this morning. Let's do business with God.